everyone. Welcome to our listeners in the Big Apple from across the U.S. and around the world. I'm Jeff Goodman, and you've tuned into Rediscovering New York. Professionally, I'm a real estate broker with Brown Harris Stevens, but our show is not a program about real estate. Rediscovering New York is a weekly program celebrating New York City, its history, its texture, its vibe, its uniqueness. And we do it through interviews with historians, local business owners, nonprofit organizations, preservationists, local musicians and artists, and the occasional elected official. On some shows, we bring an individual New York neighborhood to life. We explore its history and its current energy. What makes that particular New York neighborhood special? On some shows, like on tonight's, we showcase an interesting and vital color of the city and maybe its history that's not focused on one particular neighborhood. On prior episodes, we've covered topics as diverse and illuminating as American presidents who came from, lived in, or had some interesting history here in New York, about half of them, believe it or not. We've looked at the history of women activists and the suffrage movement. We've looked at the history of different immigrant communities, including people who were brought here enslaved. We've looked at the history of the city's LGBT community and the gay rights movement. We've looked at bicycles and cycling. Believe it or not, they've been part of our city's fabric for more than 200 years. We've looked at punk and opera. Those were separate shows, by the way. We've looked at our public library systems. We have three of them. We visited the subway. We visited art in the subway. We visited some of our greatest train stations, one of which isn't here anymore, and even some of our bridges, just to name a few. After the broadcast, each show is available on podcast. You can find us on Apple, Spotify, Amazon, Spodca- Amazon Podcast, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and other services. Well, tonight's going to be one of those special shows and one that's uh, fun and intriguing, although probably not at the time that these events were occurring. We're calling it Saboteurs and Spies, the Enemies Within. New Yorkers were people who lived here, who spied on or who committed sabotage for people who were either at war with countries who were either at war with the United States or who would be at war with the United States, but maybe they weren't at the time that they committed their sabotage. My first guest is a newbie to Rediscovering New York. He's Kevin Fitzpatrick. Kevin is the author of eight books tied to New York City and is a licensed tour guide. He wrote The Governor's Island Explorer's Guide, the first and only guidebook on the island, and another book, World War I New York, a guide to the city's enduring ties to the Great War. It won the Apple Award from the Guides Association of New York City, that's GANIC, for outstanding achievement in nonfiction books. Kevin, like myself, is a fourth-generation New Yorker who lives in the Upper West Side. You may have seen him in The New Yorker last year for bringing Dorothy Parker's ashes home to Woodlawn Cemetery. For that, he deserves special recognition and commendation. Kevin Kevin Fitzpatrick, a hearty welcome to Rediscovering New York. Thanks, Jeff, for such a warm welcome. Uh, You should be my press agent. You're awesome. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we can talk about that some other time. Uh, I have my own communications director, but you never know. Maybe there's a third career in my offing. I used to be in uh, advertising and media before I went into real estate. Um, You're from New York originally, Kevin. Did you grow up on the Upper West Side? Not actually. It's funny. Um, my great-grandparents came over from Ireland, Italy, and Ukraine. And my, my if you know any Fitzpatrick's from Rockaway Beach, that's where my dad is from. And my mom's from Gravesend. And they got married in Brooklyn. But like a lot of people in the 60s, they didn't want to live here. So I had the distinction of being born in Baltimore, of all places. And we bounced Baltimore. around. Baltimore, yeah, Charm City. Um, and we bounced around to four different states. But um, after I got out of the Marines... Um, I moved back to New York. So I've been on the Upper West Side for more than 30 years. 
Oh, wow. We'll have to talk about this offline. I, my ancestors came, have come from Ireland, Italy, and also from Ukraine. So I might have some similar uh, uh, genetic stuff going on. When did you become interested in New York history, Kevin? I got it from my grandfather. Uh, my grandfather grew up in Brooklyn. And as a kid, like a teenager, he started writing down lists of names of his family members and, uh, and ancestors from, from Ireland. And I have all those notes that he kept. And um, I've just had a very, very strong connection to um, our immigrant past and uh, the people that make the city great. And I, from as long as I can remember buying any book about New York City and flea markets and yard sales and secondhand stores, um, it's, it's just an, it's the kind of subject that you will never, ever run out of topics and rabbit holes to go down. It's the perfect subject to, to study. No, and you know, in the United States, we are a country of immigrants and descended from immigrants, but New York especially, a uh, little factoid is probably, at least since the 1880s, uh, about 40% of the people who live in New York City were not even born in the United States, and we still remain that gateway for people who seek uh, a better life and uh, seek dreams to fulfill and fulfill them in the United States. Um, talking about rabbit holes, it's one thing to be interested in New York history, Kevin. It's another to decide that you wanted to uh, make the study of the city in wartime uh, a, a, an important part of your work. How did you get interested in that? Probably coming from a military family, um, me being in the Marine Corps um, kind of set that uh, set that up for me. Um, and that's why I really started going to Governor's Island so early, um, mm -hmm. right when it opened to the public, because it really reminded me of, you know, uh, posts and bases I'd been as a younger person. Um, and it's always something interesting to, to know about um, in military history um, in particular. And Governor's Island is actually a great piece, has a great piece of military history. We're going to be talking about that on, a, on an upcoming show with uh, the person who, one of the people who actually introduced us, Mandy Enchcombe. Uh, she's going to be on in a couple of weeks to talk about Governor's Island. Um, but let's start our discussion of spies and saboteurs with the Civil War. Um, it sounds romantic, but let's just talk about the background for a second. It sounds romantic that New York City uh, was at the forefront of fighting for emancipation and freedom and keeping the union together. Um, New York was home to many abolitionists, and there was a, this was a major stop on the Underground, Ra underground Railroad. But the reality was a little different uh, than uh, some people who want to believe that all of us were fighting the good fight and with a good number of, of New Yorkers. There were many in the city, in the neighboring city of Brooklyn, which was its own city uh, until 1898, who sympathized with the South right before and during the Civil War. Why was that? Well, I think you got to look at the money, you know, the, the textile industry, you know, the commerce was coming in from the South. You know, quite a few people that are coming from slave states to live and work um, in the metro area to support businesses back home. And so they, of course, would not have been going along with uh, what the union cause was. Um, so that was probably a big part of it. And there also was uh, uh, there was there were Irish immigrants who also felt that they were being forced to bear the brunt. Um, I don't know that they would have been considered Southern sympathizers, but we had the draft riots uh, in, in 1863, but that's another topic for, for another day. Um, we're going to talk about a prison that was in New York for Confederates. So we talked about Governor, we mentioned Governor's Island. But before we do, I want to talk about some of the spies and saboteurs who actually were not imprisoned on that military base. What kind of saboteurs might there have been in New York 
at the beginning of the Civil War, people who were not military folks, but 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 citizens who decided that it was worth their while, for whatever reason, they were going to aid and abet the cause the cause of the Southern states. Well, most researchers talk about you know Southerners that stayed in New York to funnel money and information back, um, you know, quietly flying under the radar, so they weren't going to be uh, making the news or, or getting into the history books so much. The big thing, though, Jeff, is um, the attack by fire, uh, Thanksgiving 1864. Um, That was a ring of saboteurs who were Confederate um, officers who originally in November 1864 wanted to disrupt the election, Uh, but they didn't get their act together in time. So they set a plot set up on this plan on November 25th, 1864, which was to set off a series of fires around the city simultaneously. And they rented hotel rooms all over and set 19 fires at the same time at eight o'clock on that night. Um, Luckily, they were using something called Greek fire, which didn't work so well. And so none of the none of the conflagrations were very serious. Um, Two hotels did suffer some damage, the St. Nicholas and the New England Hotel, which is still around on the Bowery. Um, But the most serious was at Barnum's Museum. Everybody knows who P.T. Barnum was. But an officer named Robert Kennedy set a fire and caused a stampede and a panic, and luckily no one was killed. Um, those men then escaped to Canada the next day um, and got away. But when Kennedy came back across the border not too long after, he was captured, uh, taken to Fort Lafayette in the harbor, which we'll talk more about that fort in a minute, and was, was executed in uh, March 1865, right before the war ended. Um, that could have been very, you know, damaging to the city. You know, we had three great fires um, already in the 18th in the 18th century, and this could have been much worse. Uh, but I guess they just weren't very good saboteurs because they didn't burn anything down to the ground. What's a Greek fire? Um, <laughs> I flunked chemistry. Oh, I never heard in, of in a Greek fire before. So they, uh, obviously, if they all tried to set Greek fire, someone in their ring had to think it was a good idea and it would be effective to and a, and a, and a good way to combust uh, wooden hotels. I'm going to blame the Christian Brothers education I have for not teaching me enough chemistry. Um, but it's basically is this chemical in a jar. And when you um, it exposed to oxygen, it's supposed to start a blaze. I should know this because I come from a fire department family too, but sorry. <laughs> they weren't very good at it. A little off topic question. You know, one of the reasons that New York, uh, a lot of New Yorkers did sympathize with the South was because of money and because of commerce. And there was a lot of manufacturing and a lot of textile here. Um, there was uh, pretty much a blockade on Southern cotton. Was, was there any kind of a significant uh, trade in contraband cotton that made its way to New York? Uh, so some of the mills could, so some of the, the, uh, the manufacturers could could operate with them. Oh yeah, they were um, the 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 South was trying to maintain that trade with with Europe. I mean, that's when we were blockading, you know, Charleston and and down down south. Um, even though the North was cut off, they they tried to you know uh, sell to you know uh, to England and to, to France, and they they that failed as well too. Well, let's talk about Governor's Island, Kevin. Um, for those people who haven't been there, it's a very picturesque place right out on the harbor where many New Yorkers enjoy themselves. There are music festivals now. Uh, they actually have running water. They have, you know, not in, in tanks, which they, which it didn't for the longest time. Uh, and every summer, this sort of like a 30s, I forgot the name of it, but this with this event of people wearing vintage clothing. 
Um, it was a military base for a long time. There were two old forts there. One was Fort Jay, which dates, dates back almost to the time of the revolution. And then we have Castle Williams, which is this round, big stone structure. When was it built? Uh, 1813 for the War of 1812. And when did it become a prison? Well, not to right when the war started. Um, it kind of wasn't needed as a fortification any longer because if ships with cannons got into the harbor, they could start, you know, shelling 14th Street. So they took the cannons out. And when the war started, they started locking up Confederate POWs. They brought them up by ship uh, from North Carolina and then later uh, by rail from, you know, Pennsylvania. There's a lot of Gettysburg uh, POWs that were kept there. More than a thousand men in really terrible conditions were kept in that um, open air fort. And then in Fort Jay is where they kept the uh, the officers. Um, they had a gentleman's agreement to walk around the island, but they were kept there. Why would they have transported prisoners? I mean, in those days, it wasn't just like you got on the bus and went up I-95, you know, for, for, for two hours to get to New York City. Why would they have transported prisoners from Gettysburg to New York? We had prison prison camps all over the place, just like the South did. It was a very serious thing. You got to remember, when the war started, the Union said they were going to uh, execute Confederate officers for treason. So what the South did in Richmond is they started drawing lots of prisoners of Union officers of who was going to be executed in retaliation. So that's when that stopped. And so they had a series of prison prisoner transfers where they would do swaps. So they would send 100 Union down and they'd get 100 Confederates back, um, that kind of thing. And the prison swapping stopped at some point. I'm not exactly sure when it when it ceased, because what happened is some of these men were going back and forth a couple of times, including, you know, our star witness tonight. Uh, were there any other Civil War saboteurs in the city who was who were caught aside from um, um, Ken, what was his name? Sorry, um, Kennedy. Kennedy. Um, I'm not aware. How of, could I forget that name? But <laughs> yeah, his name was Robert Kennedy. Um, stories I'm not aware of. Um, I'm sure there, there's quite a few others, but um, uh, there aren't that many books about uh, the Civil War in New York. Um, one that's quite good is about the uh, Confederate uh, uh, war dead who are in Brooklyn. You know, Cypress Hills National Cemetery has more than 500 Confederates interred there. There's more Confederates interred in Brooklyn than any other place in the Northeast. And most of them were men who died in prison and in hospitals in the, the metro area. Wow. And are, are their graves uh, uh, recognizable as, as having been Confederate soldiers? Yes, I do a tour of Cypress Hill Cemetery, actually. Um, they are in a federal cemetery. And so federal cemeteries, you've seen like in Arlington, they have a round top. Uh, the CSA, the Confederate States, they have a peak on the top. So you can tell the difference between their graves. Um, since around 1905, the federal government is recognizing those as well, too. Um, do you know where the peak comes from? No, they, that's so the Yankees don't sit on them. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> Some cemetery humor. Well, we do also probably not many uh, 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 Jewish dead because it would be hard to leave stones on those two if they were peaked. Um, <laughs> by the way, I've been to the Jewish Confederate Cemetery in Richmond, uh, which is also really interesting. Uh, we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to continue uh, the first part of our show with Kevin Fitzpatrick. Kevin is the author of World War I New York, A Guide to the City's Enduring Ties to the Great War. We'll be back in a moment. Have you ever thought of reinventing yourself? Are you looking to create a new life's journey? 
Hi, I'm Kevin Barbaro, host of Coffee Talk XL every Tuesday night, 5, 8 p.m. Eastern on talkradio.nyc. Tune in live to hear me and my guests from a variety of different backgrounds. As a former college coach and a current full-time actor and owner of multiple companies, my show is as eclectic as my life. That's Coffee Talk XL every Tuesday night, 8 p.m. on talkradio.nyc. Are you interested in having a better relationship with yourself, others, and God? Greetings. I'm your host, Dr. George Andow, for the show, A Journey Through Into Awareness. On my show, we journey into the awareness that the mind of God is the true seat of our personal consciousness. We join together each Monday at 7 p.m., so tune in on Talk Radio NYC. Are you a conscious co-creator? Are you on a quest to raise your vibration and your consciousness? I'm Sam Leibowitz, your Conscious Consultant, and on my show, The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, we will touch upon all these topics and more. Listen live at our new time on Thursdays at 12 noon Eastern Time. That's The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, Thursdays, 12 noon on talkradio.nyc. Listening to Talk Radio NYC. Uplift, educate, empower. back to rediscovering new york in episode 123 saboteurs and spies the enemy within people who are in new york who i've spied for enemies of the united states or committed sabotage my first guest is kevin fitzpatrick kevin is an author and editor and one of the books he wrote is called world war one new york a guide to the city's enduring ties to the great war kevin you wrote seven other books oh there it is great (laughs) I'll have to get an, auto, uh, an autographed copy of both of them. What are some of the other bo- uh, books you've written? You're uh, muted. What a rookie. Um, I've written a few books about Dorothy Parker, uh, another Upper West Sider, and about the Algonquin Roundtable. I really love Jazz Age. I do literary walking tours as well, too. Um, all focused on speakeasies and the Jazz Age and brothels and all those kinds of fun things from the, uh, the Roaring Twenties. Oh, great. A thumbs up from Robert on that one. <laughs> <laughs> we actually had a show on famous New York roundtables. We spent a little time talking about the Algonquin roundtable and Dorothy Parker and Benchley and uh, uh, the, the folks at the roundtable. Super. Um, if people wanted to find out about your books and about your work and your tours, how could they do that? I have two sites. Uh, FitzpatrickAuthor.com uh, is all about my books and stuff. And then Big Apple Fanatics Tours. So that's with an S, BigAppleFanaticsTours.com. And that has my, my tour schedule. I'm actually doing Governor's Island Tour uh, August 15th and September 25th. And it's called The Secrets of Governor's Island. And I do show you where the bodies are buried. There are some, some people under the earth out there. Oh, wow. Um, on the 15th, um, if I'm not showing property, I will join you on that date. <laughs> 
um, I have my own tour on the 14th I'm, I'm, I'm conducting. Um, I want to get to the next big war and sabotage in New York, the First World War. But first, I want to ask you um, a question about a war in between the Civil War and the First World War. It's probably a war that most New Yorkers don't think about very much, and that's the Spanish-American War. Even though we have a monument to some of the, the dead at the beginning of the war at Columbus Circle at the Monument for the Maine. Do we know if there were any spies in New York who were in the service of Spain during, during this war? You know, that's a good question. You know, we were in that for such a short time, you know, under a year. Um, I don't think that there was any real sabotage or, or spy activity going on. I've never come across any stories. I'm sure maybe one of your listeners has. Um, a point of fact, though, is when the, the main was raised and it was brought back to New York, it was brought to Governor's Island. And Governor's Island has a piece of the main in South Battery still. Um, but it was it was you know, such a very brief time. If anything came out of the Spanish-American War, it showed us how unprepared we were on the supply and quartermaster side, which is why Governor's Island was used to supply um, the war material in World War I, because it wasn't utilized as such in uh, the Spanish War. Hmm. Well, speaking of World War I, let's go to the First World War. Uh, it was an interesting conflict for the United States for a number of reasons. Not the least because other countries had been at war with each other for almost three years before the U.S. entered the war, and we were officially neutral for most of the war, actually. Um, let's talk about what New York was like before we declared war on Germany in 1917, but during the first years of the war. What was New York like in the first years of the war before we actually became a belligerent? Great question. Really good question. Well, you got to remember, you know, Wilson had run on a, on a platform of he will keep us out of the war. And New York was, you know, think about what New York was like. You know, the Irish certainly don't want to get into it because they don't support Great Britain. And then look at the large, you know, German-American community um, in the city as well, too. Um, when John Perry Mitchell ran and was successful, he was a progressive and he was pro-war. He wanted to get us into the fight. And that cost him the election in 1917. And he lost to Red Mike Hyland um, because Hyland said, I don't want us to get us into the war. Um, and so there was a lot of people that wanted to, to not get into it. But as time went on and the, the losses continued to mount, people really, really wanted to, to volunteer. A lot of New Yorkers went over as volunteers to fight for France and fight for, uh, fight for the king. Um, and a lot of them lost their lives. Um, quite a few New Yorkers, actually. Wow. Um, so, you know, New York certainly, well, part of New York was certainly on the, on the side of, of the Allies. Um, we're going to talk in a minute about that, a famous explosion that actually happened in the harbor in 1916. Before we do that, um, was there a, there, there was a big German-American community in New York, um, uh, and some German citizens, but lots of uh, first and second generation German Americans. Um, was there any kind of a network of informants here in the early days of the war? Um, I'm not referring to them as spies because we weren't at war yet, so they couldn't be spying, you know, against us if we were not if we were not at war. What what kind of a network of informants were there who were who were working for for uh, the German Empire in the first? There were the a, there were a lot of people from the Central Powers who were in New York. You know, remember, you know, that before the Lusitania sank, uh, Germany took out ads in newspapers saying, you know, don't get on the ship. You know that you know we are at war. Um, and so, you know, anybody that's been to the west side of Manhattan and, and can see how, you know, steamships are, are loaded up, 
it could be filled with spies. That's why when the Americans were sending um, the Doughboys over to fight in France, they didn't leave from Manhattan. They left from Hoboken um, because the army could control those piers and could keep, you know, what, you know, prying eyes away from um, those steamships that are going over to, to fight in France. Um, but, you know, there was definitely, um, you know, maybe not as many as, you know, Robert will talk about in World War II, but there definitely was, you know, sympathizers in, in the U.S. at that time. And of course, there would have been um, informants who might. Uh, the Lusitania uh, did, uh, did it sail from the West Side piers of Manhattan? Yeah, it was White Star Line. You know, right where Little Island is right now. That's where it departed from. So there were probably informants who. I mean, the uh, uh, the the story of the word is that uh, the reason why it blew up the way it did is because when a torpedo hit it, uh, the hole was filled with armaments that were on their way to uh, uh, to Britain. Uh, so there probably were informants who reported on what was going into that ship, uh, at, you know, before it left New York. And that was in 1915. Yeah, more than likely. I mean, that there, there was there was three instances that led us into the war. One is the sink of the Lusitania and the unrestricted, you know, German submarine warfare. And in the Zimmerman telegram, which was. Join. Um, so that would, which then led into. Actually, black. Kevin, we had, we had an unstable internet connection. Could you repeat what you said about the Zipperman telegram? You went uh, a little blank after that. Oh, I'm sorry. And so spies, you know, they're trying to attack me through, you know, <laughs> through Verizon. Um, the Zimmerman telegram was a cable that went from the Kaiser to Mexico city um, that was intercepted by the English. And what it said was essentially is if Mexico joined with Germany to fight America on our Southern border after Germany was victorious, they would give them back California, Texas, New Mexico, and Congress is like, what are you talking about? Mm -hmm. So that was really something that really set us that, you know, that Germany is not being honorable and we need to take action. Well, this brings us to a major uh, catastrophe that happened in New York Harbor in 1916, Black Tom. Um, what was the island of Black Tom? Actually, it was a promontory. It wasn't really an island. Or was it an island? What, what was it and how did it get there and what happened there? It was, it was an island and then there was landfill. Um, it's right where Liberty State Park is today. So if you were standing on Liberty Island in the back of the Statue of Liberty and looking to New Jersey, that's right where it was. Easy to find. Um, what was happening is all the ammunition and munitions or manufactured United States all over the country went on rail lines to that port, to that part of New Jersey. Then they would go on barges and those barges would then go to steamships they would go over to the allies to, to fight in, in Europe. The day of the explosion, July 30th, 1916, there was 2 million pounds of ammunition on those docks. And um, barges would take them to ships. The uh, ships actually didn't, unlike in Hoboken or the west side of Manhattan, they didn't actually dock at Black Tom. They were taken out in barges. Well, the, the barges would go around, you know, where Weehawken is, and they would load them on from there. There was, you know, different kinds of passenger ships and commercial ships and, and transport ships. Who was responsible for it? What, how did they, how did they blow it up? Um, well, no one's ever caught, no one's ever prosecuted. 
So in the middle of the night, a little after 2 a.m., a series of explosions went off. And explosions lasted for three hours. It was so loud, you can hear it in Boston and Philadelphia. And it shook the city like an earthquake. It blew out windows all over the place. Shrapnel went into the back of the Statue of Liberty, pierced the skin. Um, the, the pedestal took most of it. Um, there was you know, holes punched into the copper around the back. Uh, one of the myths is the arm was damaged, and that's why you can't go up into the flame anymore of the right arm. It's not exactly true. Um, but it did cause uh, significant damage. Seven men were killed, um, and it really leveled that whole part of, of New Jersey. Um, today, there's, there's really no memorials to it. There's, no, there's like, I think, one sign in Liberty State Park. And uh, there's a church in Jersey City, um, the Our Lady of uh, Chautauqua Church on um, Sussex Street has a really nice stained glass window dedicated to the black tom explosion but if anything came out of that it was don't bring high explosives through new york harbor any longer can one still see remnants of black tom today at all if you go out there can you any any remnants at all it's all underground um they they buried it i mean that's why nobody lives there because there's so many toxins and chemicals and not such good stuff is just under the surface but if you go into the park office um some rangers uh found uh, some public turned over to the rangers some people from the public some pieces of shrapnel and bits so you can see you know a little bit of of bits of it but there's nothing nothing major left well interesting little fact one thing that may have complicated uh our inability or we're not picking up uh uh people not finding out about this plot beforehand is that at the time that black tom went off there was no federal statute that prohibited espionage during peacetime where that even prohibited sabotage. I mean, obviously there were there were laws against blowing things up and committing arson, but we didn't have any laws that prohibited people from um, committing uh, spying uh, or, or passing intelligence if, uh, uh, if we weren't at war. Um, were there any other significant saboteurs or spies in New York after the explosion of Black Tom, Kevin? There were there were a couple other you know smaller incidents, but that was really the major one. Hmm. All right. Well, unfortunately, we're out of time in our segment. Uh, Kevin Fitzpatrick, thanks so much for being our first guest on this program about saboteurs and spies, the enemies within, people who lived in New York who were uh, evildoers who were trying to do in either the United States or our allies. First guest has been Kevin Fitzpatrick. Kevin is an author, editor, and tour guide, and he's the author of the book called World War I New York, A Guide to the City's Enduring Ties to the Great War. Uh, We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to be speaking with our second guest about spies and saboteurs in New York during the Second World War. We'll be back in a moment. Thank you. Do you feel uninformed about menopause and how it impacts on your life? Hi, I'm Pat Duckworth, women's health strategist and host of the Hot Women Rock radio show, empowering women leaders at menopause. Join me every Thursday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. UK Time on talkradio.nyc for interviews with inspirational women who will share their top tips to rock your world. Hey everybody, it's Tommy D, the nonprofit sector connector coming at you from my attic. Each week here on talkradio.nyc, I host a program, Philanthropy in Focus. Nonprofits impact us each and every day, and it's my focus to help them amplify their message and tell their story. Listen each week at 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time until 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time right here on talkradio.nyc. 
Are you a business owner? Do you want to be a business owner? Do you work with business owners? Hi, I'm Stephen Fry, your small and medium-sized business or SMB guy, and I'm the host of the new show, Always Friday. While I love to have fun on my show, we take those Friday feelings of freedom and clarity to discuss popular topics on the minds of SMBs today. Please join me and my various special guests on Friday at 11 a.m. on talkradio.nyc. Do you run or are ready to open your own business? Hi, I'm Jeremiah Fox. I've been operating and opening small business for the last 25 years, and I'm the host of the new show, The Entrepreneurial Web. Tune in every Friday at noon Eastern time for insights and stories on the nuances of running small business right here on Fridays at noon, talkradio.nyc. You're listening to Talk Radio NYC at www.talkradio.nyc. Now broadcasting 24 hours a day. We're back. Support for Rediscovering New York comes from our sponsors. Chirag Modi, mortgage strategist at Freedom Mortgage. For assistance in any kind of residential mortgage, Chirag can be reached at 718-210-1167. And support also comes from Jacqueline Hosford Interior Design, specializing in residential and commercial renovation and decorating. Jacqueline can be reached at 347-482-1700. You can like the show on Facebook, Rediscovering New York with Jeff Goodman, and you can follow me on Instagram and Twitter. My handle's there at Jeff Goodman NYC. If you have comments or questions, or if you'd like to get on our mailing list, please email me, Jeff at rediscoveringnewyork.nyc. One of the note before we get to our second guest, even though the program is not a show about real estate, when I'm not on the air, I am deed a real estate agent in our amazing city, where I help my clients buy, sell, lease, and rent property. If you or someone you care about is considering a move into, out of, or within New York, I would love to help you with those real estate needs. You can reach me and my team at 646-306-4761. Our second guest on the show on Saboteurs and Spies is a returning guest to Rediscovering New York. It's Robert Brenner. Bob is a New York City tour guide. He's a certified member of the Guides Association of New York City. That's GANIC, for those not familiar with the acronym. And he is a lifelong New York history buff and also an adventurous eater. Bob started Pig Feet Walking Tours in 2014 because he was not able to find tours that covered the subjects that he's interested in. And we'll be talking about a couple of those a little later. Since creating the company, he's created and led walking tours for a whole coterie of organizations, including the Historic Districts Council, Jane's Walk, the Municipal Art Society of New York, and the New York Public Libraries. Bob's published works have appeared in New York Magazine, the Huffington Post, Salon, and many other publications. Bob Brenner, a hearty welcome back to Rediscovering New York. Uh, thanks, thanks for having me back on. I, I guess I didn't screw up the first session too badly. No, uh, and hopefully won't this. No, no, you were a great guest. And then, by the way, it was a fascinating conversation. It was about the uh, uh, some of the uh, uh, more uh, darker downtown streets and olden times. We talked about the Bowery and Allen Street and Bob's insights into Allen Street uh, 100 years ago were very illuminating. 
Uh, Bob, home is where the heart is, and you live in Chelsea. Are you from New York originally? Um, no, don't don't tell anyone. But uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna out myself. I was born and raised in Nyack. Uh, for my first, I started out there. Uh, I remember distinctly the day my parents told me that they had moved out of the city uh, to the suburbs uh, to raise a family. I thought it was the stupidest thing I'd ever heard. And I spent uh, most of my teenage years trying to get back into the city and I'm in the 1970s and I moved here per, uh, permanently uh, in the early 1980s when uh, most, most people were leaving. Mm. Well, like some of us, uh, you didn't leave, you were here. Uh, New York was an exciting place in the 80s, although it was gritty and uh, lots of graffiti and uh, it was an interesting place, an interesting time to live here. Um, I've actually referred people to uh, a couple of shows I've had about punk in New York. That was more in the 70s, but then had a show about a month and a half ago on the new music scene in New York in the 80s. Uh, it's at the archives. It's worth it's worth listening to. How did you first get interested in creating and putting together tours, Bob? Um, well, yeah, I'm a lifelong uh, New York City uh, history buff. Uh, when I find a topic that I'm interested in, I read everything I can about it. Uh, I was particularly uh, interested in, you know, more obscure aspects of New York City history, uh, where it seemed like I was the only one who really knew the details of it. And after, you know, a, a certain amount of study, you think like, well, I kind of like to share this information with somebody. And... Uh, uh, so I just sort of on a lark founded uh, Pick Feet Walking Tours, and then lo and behold, people actually showed up for uh, my tours, and uh, I was off and running. Well, speaking of offbeat tours, and I have to share that I'm a real fan of intrigue and of spies, uh, sort of in the Cold War, but also, uh, you know, fighting the good fight back in the old days. How did you become interested in the history of spies in the United States and in New York during the Second World War? Well, this is, you know, this is actually kind of a personal. Uh, it started with the uh, uh, Charlottesville in North Carolina in, in 2017. You know, you had all these sort of neo-Nazis with, uh, with tiki torches marching uh, in the streets, you know, chanting, you know, Jews will not replace us. And people were shocked, shocked. Oh, my God, how can you be, you know, neo-Nazis be marching in, uh, in, in a major New York City? Uh, but I was not uh, surprised. My mother grew up on the Lower East Side. I said, oh. I used to see uh, Nazis marching uh, all the time in New York City, up uh, up in Germantown, up in what is now called uh, Yorkville. Uh, Yorkville was a major uh, uh, German neighborhood uh, uh, prior to World War II. Uh, there are actually more Germans living in in uh, in Germantown than in Berlin at that time, and unfortunately, some of them uh, some of them were Nazis. Uh, were were big fans of Adolf Hitler. Uh, and this is, again, one of these obscure topics that people don't like talking about. You read some of the official histories of Yorkville, it stops in the 1920s and jumps to the 1950s. The 30s and 40s uh, are skipped over. And yet, to me, this is a dark but fascinating uh, uh, chapter in that, in that neighborhood's history. Uh, in fact, it, it is a little frightening. You can see uh, there are photographs of these major marches on 86th Street. And if you look at them, you can think, oh, is this going on in Munich or Nuremberg or Berlin? And actually it was, it was New York in the 30s. Um, which brings us to, to the neighborhood and also the German-American Bund. Um, let's talk about the German-American community that was centered in and around Yorkville. 
Was there anything about it that made it potentially more prone to host uh, spies and saboteurs than other places in New York uh, that also would have had German-Americans and a German-American community living there? Well, well, first of all, it was the largest German neighborhood uh, in New York City at the time. Uh, I think you know, only Ridgewood was a, a distant second. Uh, second of all, the, the German community had been through a lot uh, in the preceding decades. Uh, there was a lot of suspicion against Germans during uh, World War I, uh, of course. Uh, then uh, you had pro- prohibition in the 1920s. A lot of Germans uh, uh, worked uh, in the brewery or saloon business, and suddenly the, those businesses were wiped out or, or they continued, they were uh, now labeled criminals. And then, of course, in the 1930s, uh, everyone was uh, impacted uh, economically. And then, of course, in 1933, Hitler comes to power uh, in Germany, and he basically says, kills the Germans and says, hey, you're not criminals, you're not losers, you, you, you are the master race. And you can see to a you know, certain minority within the German community, that might be an appealing message. What was the German-American Bund? Uh, uh. So the German-American Bund was uh, founded in 1936. Uh, they had about 100,000 uh, members nationwide. Uh, they had offices in uh, about every major uh, uh, American city at that time. Uh, but, their, uh, but their national headquarters was right here in Yorkville on, on East 85th Street. Um, and this was founded by a, a guy by the name of Fritz Kuhn. He was the, the Bundführer of, of, of the German-American Bund. Uh, in 1936, he, he, he visited Munich, Germany to attend the Olympics. Uh, he met with Adolf Hitler uh, personally, uh, and Hitler gave him his blessings. And the purpose of the German-American Bund was to basically to promote the Nazi perspective on the situation in the Europe, because everyone by 36 saw the uh, storm clouds uh, uh, gathering. And what the Nazis were very concerned about was keeping the United States neutral as long as possible. They did not want the United States to enter the war, or they did enter the war, they wanted it to, it, them to enter the war on the side of the Axis. And so the Bund was very active in promoting, uh, promoting this perspective. Uh, they're most notorious uh, uh, for having this massive rally in Madison Square Garden in 1939. I think some of you may have seen uh, uh, this documentary that came out a few years ago called A Night, at a, Night of the Garden. Uh, that was the work of the Bund uh, to, to pr- promote basically uh, the Nazi uh, perspective and to push for the U.S. to stay neutral uh, and stay out of the uh, coming war. Mm. What, before we take a break, well, I wanted to ask you, what kind of other legitimate and legal ones, well, they're legitimate, but other legal activities did the Bund undertake before the U.S. entered the war? Um, one of the things the Bund was uh, most notorious about uh, that was running summer camps. They ran, uh, they ran summer camps all over uh, 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 the United States. Uh, they had one out. Probably not like the Jewish summer camps I went to. No, 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 no. These were Nazi summer camps. These are basically places for uh, teenage youth to go uh, to be uh, indoctrinated in Nazism and, and learn useful skills like marching, shooting guns, making bombs, street fighting, things, things of that, things of that sort for the, for the coming conflict. 
Uh, making bombs too? Yes, making bombs. Uh, not just plain old archery. Well, I no, did no, archery no. This was way, way. Be, this was not an archery. This was not an archery class. Uh, uh, the Bund felt that you know at some point Germany would invade the United States, and at that point they wanted to be ready to rise up and and, uh, and support the uh, Nazi invasion. They were going. They were fifth colonists. Wow! Wow! It's almost terrifying to think of it. Um, anyway. Um, it's a strange uh, place to uh, take a short break, but take a short break, we must. Uh, when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with Bob Brenner uh, on this episode called Sabotars and Saboteurs and Spies, the Enemy Within. And they really, uh, some of these folks did do sound like they were the enemy within. We'll be back in a moment. Are you passionate about the conversation around racism? Hi, I'm Reverend Dr. TLC, host of the Dismantle Racism Show, which airs every Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern on talkradio.nyc. Join me and my amazing guests as we discuss ways to uncover, dismantle, and eradicate racism. That's Thursdays at 11 o'clock a.m. on talkradio.nyc. Are you a small business trying to navigate the COVID-19 related employment laws? Hello, I'm Eric Sauver, employment law business law attorney and host of the new radio show, Employment Law Today. On my show, we'll have guests to discuss the common employment law challenges business owners are facing during these trying times. Tune in on Tuesday evenings from 5 p.m. to 6 p.m. Eastern time on talkradio.nyc. Gateway to the Smokies. It airs on talkradio.nyc every Tuesday night from 6 p.m. to 7. Every episode is dedicated to memorable experiences in the Great Smoky Mountains National Park and surrounding areas. This show features experts and locals who will expound upon the richness of culture, history, and adventure that awaits you in the Smokies. Tune in every Tuesday from 6 p.m. to 7 on talkradio.nyc. Do you love or are you intrigued about New York City and its neighborhoods? I'm Jeff Goodman, host of Rediscovering New York, a weekly show that showcases New York's history and its extraordinary neighborhoods. Every Tuesday live at 7 p.m., we focus on a particular neighborhood and explore its history, its vibe, its feel, and its energy. Tune in live every Tuesday at 7 p.m. on talkradio.nyc. You're listening to Talk Radio NYC at www.talkradio.nyc. Now broadcasting 24 hours a day. We're back. And you're back to Rediscovering New York. This is episode 123, Saboteurs and Spies, the Enemy Within, people who worked for the enemy who lived in New York uh, during wartime. Um, My second guest is Bob Brenner. Bob is the founder of Pig Feet Walking Tours. And Bob, as fascinating as our topic is, I want to take a little uh, detour and talk about Pig Feet. Uh, the name of the company could conjure up all kinds of interesting thoughts. What are the, what are a few of the tours that you offer that uh, are your favorites and that you're even the most proud of? 
Well, you know, it's like asking which is your favorite uh, favorite child. Uh, you know, all, all of my tours are unique. All of them are, are products of uh, individual uh, 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 great research. Um, I suppose I'm most proud of this 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 one of of Yorkville in the 1930s because it's probably I think the most politically and uh, motivated of my tours and 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 the most uh, uh, personal. Uh, I really am concerned. Uh, about the rise of, you know, fascist elements within the United States. And I wanted to point out to people that this is nothing new. There has uh, unfortunately always been this element uh, in the, in the uh, U.S., at least, at least since the uh, 1930s. They may go underground uh, uh, periodically, uh, but they also periodically rear their ugly heads. Well, it's not been so underground lately, unfortunately. No, no, no. No, it has not. Um what are you doing a tour of of uh, Yorkville anytime soon? Well, I'm going to be doing a webinar on uh, Tuesday, August 7th. Uh, I basically have suspended physical tours uh, uh, during the pandemic. I've been doing, however, uh, webinars uh, 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 for New York Adventure Club. Uh, I just did one on Allen Street. Uh, last week that was very successful. I'll be doing one on uh, on Nazis and Yorkville uh, next this coming Tuesday and the following Tuesday. Since since you mentioned punk in the nineteen seventies nineteen eighties, I'll be doing New York City in the nineteen seventies and the eighties. Uh, Fear City, and we'll get we'll get into all of that uh, as well. well. A lot of simpatico between my personal interest and your tours. How can people find out about about your programming, Bob? Where can they go? Uh, the, the simplest thing is just Google Pick Feed Walking Tours. You'll either uh, uh, go to my website or you'll find my Facebook page. My Facebook page, uh, just because I update it uh, almost daily, is, is probably more uh, more current than my website at this point. Uh, but either, either of those are useful. And, of course, going to New York Adventure Club and just uh, looking for my name, Brenner, uh, you'll, you'll see my latest webinars on there. All right. Well, back to the Bund and back to Fritz Kuhn uh, and New York in the 1930s. Um, Kuhn was actually a naturalized American. Uh, he was born in Germany. He fought in the First War, the First World War in Germany and, and, and immigrated here, I think, in the late 20s. He was actually stripped of his citizenship and deported to Germany after the war. Why? What happened? Oh, oh, oh well. Well, the whole story with uh, Kuhn is, yes, he was born in Germany. Uh, he fought on the side of Germany during World War I. Uh, sometime in the 1920s, he joined the Nazi party, although he did not tell the U.S. that when he immigrated here. Uh, but, he, but he did uh, come to the United States uh, both for uh, better economic opportunities uh, but also to forward the message of Nazism in the United States. Um, after this 1939 uh, rally in Madison Square Garden, uh, the authorities raided the headquarters of the Bund. Uh, they thought they might be able to get uh, uh, get uh, Kuhn on, on income tax evasion, uh, you know, do an Al, Al Capone on him. But they found something even better. They found out that he had been embezzling funds from the Bund to keep him mistress. He had a mistress uh, named Florence Kamp. Of course, the, uh, all the uh, tabloids called him Florence Mein Kamp. 
and he had been embezzling uh, 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 bun money uh, uh, and, blowing, and blowing it on this tootsie he had on the side. Uh, his legal defense was that as Bunnfielder, he could uh, he could spend the Bun's money on anything he wanted, including mistresses. Uh, the jury did not agree. He was uh, he was convicted of embezzlement. He went to prison. He sat out the war uh, in prison. After the war, uh, he was stripped of his citizenship because he had lied about being a member of the Nazi party, and he was supported back to Germany, uh, and he spent the rest of his life basically uh, telling uh, anyone who would care to listen how he could have been the Führer of the United States if only things had played out differently. Who was Walter Kopp? Walter Kopp, he was another member of the German-American Bund. Um, he seemed to have uh, some kind of falling out with uh, Kuhn. You know, all of these guys were sort of like would-be Hitlers. And imagine getting a bunch of Hitlers in the same room. You know, they would get on each other's nerves. Uh, but Kopp uh, uh, returned uh, to Germany. and But that was not the end of his uh, activities. He was responsible for recruiting uh, 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 saboteurs for something called Operation Pastorius. Uh, he, he was, uh, Germany by 41, 42, you know, the United States had entered the war, clearly was not gonna stay neutral. The United States wanted to launch sabotage uh, uh, attacks on, on the United States. And Kopp was uh, recruited uh, to find people like himself. Germans who had spent lots of time in the United States, uh, spoke English fluently, were well-versed in American culture, and could pass as Americans. And these were the, uh, but had gone back to Germany, and these were the people that he recruited to be these uh, saboteurs for Operation Pastorius. Mm. I do want to talk about one chap who uh, was originally a spy, but he turned out to be a double agent and worked for the FBI. Do you want to talk about William Siebold? Yeah, yeah, I do. Because uh, William Siebold is really this unsung he- hero of World War II. Um, like uh, Kuhn, he was born in Germany. He fought on the side of uh, Germany during World War I. He moved uh, uh, to the United States after the war. He became a naturalized citizen, uh, but he took his uh, he took his citizenship very very seriously. He took his vow of citizenship very seriously. He was American as far as he was concerned. And then he made the mistake, though, of returning in 1939 to Germany to visit his mother, who still lived uh, who still lived in Germany at the time. He wanted to see, you know, how she was doing. Uh, at that point, the Nazis grabbed him and said, hey, you speak English fluently without an accent, you look like an American, you talk like American, and oh, by the way, you were also, he also had a background in radio technology. He was, a ra- he was a radio engineer by trade. He said, we want you to spy for you, spy for us, and if you don't, bad things can happen to you and your mom. You'll, ne- you'll never leave Germany alive. Um, and Siebel, though, thinking fast, he slipped away. He spoke to the American consul. The American consuls, he said, what do I do? What do I do? I don't want to spy for the Nazis, but, you know, I'm on a jam here. Consul said, keep calm, play along. When you return to the United States, somebody for the FBI will contact you. That's what he did. He stayed in Germany uh, for all of 1940, training in all kinds of you know spy stuff, secret codes, all that kind of jazz. He returned to the United States. He was contacted by somebody from the FBI, and they set him up in an office, a special office in Times Square, wired for sound. 
And for most of 1941, every spy in the tri-state region, every Nazi spy in the tri-state region came to meet William Siebold ostensibly to pass along their secrets to Nazi Germany. And in reality, they were being secretly recorded uh, uh, by the FBI. Wow. And you mentioned before the, uh, we went on the air that uh, he uh, had to uh, go into the equivalent of the witness protection program, which is where he lived until the, re- the end of his life. Um, Bob, we're almost out of time. Um, there were other, there were Americans who were enemies within. Uh, Henry Ford was a German sympathizer, Charles Lindbergh, of course. One I want you to talk about very briefly was Father Coughlin. Well, who was he and what did he do? Um, he was sort of the Alex Jones uh, uh, of the period. He had a very popular uh, 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 radio program that had like 30 million listeners. It's a time when you know radio was really, really, before television, radio was really, really big. And what he would do was every, every week would uh, uh, rail against the Judeo-Bolshevik menace. Uh, basically, there was this uh, worldwide conspiracy uh, of, of Jews and communists who were going to who were seeking to take over the world. And uh, as far as uh, Coughlin was concerned, the only people who were doing anything about it were the Nazis. So he, you know, he advocated on on on, on the uh, part of the Nazi. He also had a a political group, a group called the Christian Front who in 1940 uh, uh, attempted to stage a coup in the United States. Uh, they, were going, they were going to basically seize control and trying uh, and you know, try and install a fascist government. Didn't work out for them, but uh, uh, they did try. Oh, wow. Well, on that note, um, Bob, we're out of time. Thank you so much for being on this show, uh, Saboteurs and Spies on Rediscovering New York. Our guests have been Kevin Fitzpatrick and also Bob Renner. Bob is the founder of Pig Feet Tours, Pig Feet Walking Tours. Um, Very fascinating tours. Uh, You can find him online. Uh, If you have comments or questions about the show, if you'd like to get on our mailing list, please email me, jeff at rediscoveringnewyork.nyc. You can like the show on Facebook. And you can also follow me on Instagram and Twitter. My handles there are Jeff Goodman NYC. Once again, I'd like to thank our sponsors, Chirag Modi, Mortgage Strategist at Freedom Mortgage, and Jacqueline Hosford, Interior Design. One more thing before we sign off, I'm Jeff Goodman, a real estate agent at Brown Harris Stevens in New York City. And whether you're selling, buying, leasing, or renting, my team and I provide the best service and expertise in New York City real estate. To help you with your real estate needs, you can reach us at 646-306-4761. Our producer is Ralph Sturrier. Our engineer this evening is Emily Shulman, and we wish her well in her new venture after she leaves the station. Our production assistant is Eric Nelson. Our special consultant is David Griffin of Landmark Branding. Stay tuned at 8 p.m. right here on Talk Radio at NYC for Coffee Talk XL with Kevin Barbaro. Thanks for listening, everyone. We'll see you next time. Did you know that nearly one in five adults in the U.S. battles mental illness? Hi, my name is Albert Daba. I'm the host of the show Extra Inning. 
trainings, I discuss the topics of wellness, mental health, and the experience of surviving multiple suicides within my family. Listen live every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern to Extra Innings for discussions with sports figures, artists, mental health professionals, and many others. That's Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern on talkradio.nyc. In a post-COVID world, you may have many unanswered questions regarding your health. Are you looking to live a healthier lifestyle? Do you have a desire to learn more about mental health and enhance your quality of life? Or do you just want to participate in self-understanding and awareness? I'm Frank R. Harrison, host of Frank About Health, and each Thursday, I will tackle these questions and work to enlighten you. Tune in every Thursday at 5 p.m. on talkradio.nyc, and I will be Frank About Health to advocate for all of us. Do you love or are you intrigued about New York City and its neighborhoods? I'm Jeff Goodman, host of Rediscovering New York, a weekly show that showcases New York's history and its extraordinary neighborhoods. Every Tuesday live at 7 p.m., we focus on a particular neighborhood and explore its history, its vibe, its feel, and its energy. Tune in live every Tuesday at 7 p.m. on talkradio.nyc. Passionate about the conversation around racism? Hi, I'm Reverend Dr. TLC, host of the Dismantle Racism Show, which airs every Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern on talkradio.nyc. Join me and my amazing guests as we discuss ways to uncover, dismantle, and eradicate racism. That's Thursdays at 11 o'clock a.m. on talkradio.nyc. Have you ever thought of reinventing yourself? Are you looking to create a new life's journey? Hi, I'm Kevin Barbaro, host of Coffee Talk XL every Tuesday night, 5, 8 p.m. Eastern on talkradio.nyc. Tune in live to hear me and my guests from a variety of different backgrounds. As a former college coach and a current full-time actor and owner of multiple companies, my show is as eclectic as my life. That's Coffee Talk XL every Tuesday night, 8 p.m. on talkradio.nyc. 